Well, friends, it's a, it's a privilege to be with you. I, I, um, I know the guy who gets up here is supposed to say that, but I, I really do count it a privilege to be in a space and to be able to talk about something this important, to be invited to talk about something this important. Oney thinks I'm woke, but that's just because I've got two children under the age of five. Um, no other reason. But I get to speak to you tonight about that word that's on the screen there, it was on the screen earlier, privilege. Uh, particularly white privilege. I know saying that phrase out loud is like Harry Potter saying Voldemort. I always feel like some scary guy is going to try and hurt me after I've spoken about this. So let's talk about that tonight. Though. Let's talk about privilege, that, that shall not be named. But let's be brave and let's name it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about white privilege. Now, I don't stand up here and presume to speak on behalf of all white people. Uh, Nobody voted for me or elected me. No one would vote for me or elect me to this job. I endeavor only to speak on my own behalf, and I hope that what I say is helpful, um, regardless of how you feel about this particular issue, um, regardless of how you experience white privilege, what side of the coin you're on there. The way I want to talk tonight specifically about white privilege is I want to talk about my own city, the city of Cape Town, and I want to speak about my own specific experience of the city of Cape Town. Now, I know it's normally customary for a guy who comes from like Cape Town to make rude jokes about Pretoria or Johannesburg. I'm not going to do that, not because I don't have any, but just because the first time I was ever going to preach a sermon to an adult congregation, the age of 21, the tender, impressionable age of 21, my mother said to me, who was in the congregation, Stephen, don't tell any jokes because you're not funny. You know, I don't know how that goes down to the root of who you are as a person. So I don't tell jokes about other people's cities. I was born in the suburb of Goodwood in Cape Town. Uh, if you know anything about that place, I think it is the place where the word Zeph was coined. Um, of my 36 years that I've lived on this planet, I've spent 17 of them in Cape Town. My grandfather, my dad's side, was the lighthouse keeper on Robben Island, so I like to tell people that I have real struggle credentials. Um, my grandmother... On my, uh, my grandfather, my mother's side, great-grandfather, my mother's side, was the owner of the original restaurant at Cape Point Nature Reserve, at the Cape Point there. Um, so I've got like these roots that go to these iconic spots in Cape Town. And after doing some schooling in university in the city of Durban, I moved back to Cape Town in January 2005 to go to Bible College to study theology. I had two weeks before I started college when I first moved down there, and I went down with the whole family on a bit of a holiday road trip. And my mother worked in timeshare at the time, which means we got to stay in the Peninsula Hotel in the suburb of Seapoint. Now, you might hear a bit about Seapoint at the moment because it's a bit of a flashpoint in the news around social housing and a whole bunch of things. But Seapoint is a little bit like heaven on earth. It's beautiful. It's very windy in Cape Town, but in Seapoint, it's not windy. The sea is right in front of you. Lion's Head is behind you. There are all these holiday homes. There are models and happy, shiny people everywhere. I feel ugly every time I'm out there. Um, people are filming adverts there all the time. It is a little bit like utopia on earth. Stunning, stunning views. And that was my initial experience of Cape Town when I got back there as an adult for the first time. Well, for the second time, but as an adult. Unmatched beauty, incredible variety, uh, mountains, seas, beaches, uh, suburbs, Beautiful leafy green suburbs, quaint towns nearby like Franschuk and things like that, all within the space of one big city. And so I asked myself, well, where else on the planet would you really want to live? 
when you got all that. Uh, as a young adult at the time, I'm still a young adult, the, the city was my oyster. It was, it was for me. A little bit of paradise on earth, a little bit of utopia on earth. That could have made the sea a bit warmer, but I'll take it. Now, I looked at that and I said to myself, Cape Town is for me. It's for me. That was my initial experience of the city. The city was built for my entertainment, for my pleasure, for my advancement. Like you really, I felt like I really couldn't fail in this place. And then over time, things started to become a little bit more uncomfortable for me. Because over time I began to realize that there are two distinct faces to the city of Cape Town. So in the first few years that I was at Bible College, I got sent out to do a whole lot of itinerant preaching at different churches around the city of Cape Town. Churches in suburbs, townships, places that you might have heard of, like Kailicha, Grassy Park, Imizama Yetu, Masipumalele, several other neighborhoods in the city where if you go onto YouTube and you look for drone footage, promotional drone footage of the city, you're not going to see these neighborhoods in those videos. And it became very clear to me that there were two obvious differences between these neighborhoods and the neighborhoods that I frequented at the time and, and, and did my, my, my life and my, my fun in. First of all, in these neighborhoods, a lot of people were poor. Their houses were run down. The streets were dirty. There were signs of social and urban decay everywhere that I went. Whereas the neighborhoods I frequented, the houses were big. The, the streets and the lawns were really well maintained. There were new fancy buildings, developments popping up all the time. So the difference in wealth and infrastructure was massive and obvious. That was the first thing. The second thing I noticed was that there was a race difference here. The people in these neighborhoods were not white. They were black and colored. Sure, there were some black and colored people in some of the neighborhoods I was in, but here it was stark. There were only black and colored people in these neighborhoods. And so from just straightforward observation, while as a white person I looked at Cape Town and I said, well, Cape Town is for me, I looked at Cape Town and I said, it seems like Cape Town is really not for these people. It doesn't seem to be for them. The city doesn't seem to be rooting for these people. And being the nosy person that I am, I want to figure this out. I want to say, well, why is this my experience of the city? Why is this our experience of the city? And the answers that I discovered made me and continue to make me deeply uncomfortable about my place and my role in the city and in this country in general. Now, I will come clean. It's not like I noticed this stuff for the first time when I moved to Cape Town. I noticed this stuff growing up as a younger person in Durban. But my younger self had sort of propped itself up with, for lack of a better phrase, white myths that served as plausibility structures to help me understand my experience and make sense of everything that was going on around me. Things like, well, black people must be lazy, right? I mean, how else do you account for the fact that they're all in that neighborhood and we're all in this neighborhood? And that neighborhood's poor and this neighborhood is rich. They must be lazy. How, how else do you, I mean, it's simple math, right? Or, or black people must have entitlement issues. I'd heard that a lot. You know, they were just sitting back and saying, well, the government's going to do everything for us now, and so they're not working, and that's why they're there. And then, and then we went to the government, and, and, the, and that was the big problem. The black government is incapable of fixing impoverished areas because of corruption and because of incompetence, right? That must be it. It seems so logical, so straightforward. What other reasons could there be for this, this dynamic? And so I believed some vestige of those myths for quite a long time to justify my experience of South Africa and South African cities. 
But Cape Town made those myths start to fall down, to break down, and to tumble down. There was no Damascus Road experience uh, or anything like that. There were simply sustained discussions, uh, very gracious black and colored friends, lots and lots and lots of listening over a long period of time. Uh, interestingly for me, a lot of journalism, a lot of journalists writing and stuff and reading a lot of journalism, and then reading a lot of academic research, actually, from a range of different perspectives, from people I wouldn't normally read or, or look up. And over time, I became convinced and, and remain convinced that my experience of the city of Cape Town and really this country is far better explained as being the result of almost 400 years of systemic racial oppression and exclusion rather than those suspect white myths that I'd propped up in my own head, propped myself up in my own head with. See, I believe that those 400 years of systemic racial discrimination did something. And what they did was to embed certain power dynamics, certain social dynamics into the fabric of our society, into the fabric of our country and our cities and the interactions that we have with each other in those cities. Those, those centuries created and solidified social realities like white privilege, like whiteness, actually, if you want to talk about it that way. And I know that when I say that, that causes strong emotion from you as you hear that. I know because I have this conversation with people all the time in Cape Town and I get strong emotional responses. But here's what I mean. Louise Ferreira is a journalist. I think she's based up here in Gauteng. Uh, she explains whiteness this way. She wrote an article a couple of years ago. She said, whiteness has various definitions. It is important to note that whiteness is distinct from race. In a nutshell, it refers to the idea that when it comes to social, political, economic, and cultural behavior, white culture, norms, and values are considered the norm, the standard. Whiteness defines other cultures in relation to itself. Whiteness, in other words, does not refer to having white skin necessarily. Whiteness is not conscious racism. It is the idea that the way white people exist in the world, which is not wrong in and of itself, is what is normal, and it gives us social, political, economic, and cultural power. And she's speaking as a white person herself there. And when I got that, when, I, when that started to sink down into my head, into my heart, I realized that, that I had that. I had this white privilege built off of the back of almost 400 years. And I realized that I was also in the present, in many ways, deeply complicit in perpetuating whiteness, keeping it going, fueling it. And so I, I think, I stand up here in front of you tonight as someone who wants to say, I think it's undeniable that whiteness and white privilege exists, okay? Um, I could spend a long time trying to make an argument, trying to make that case, but there really, 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 really is a ton of academic research out there. Google is your friend on this one. Read the articles that are explaining white privilege, not the fake news articles that are trying to say white doesn't exist. There is plenty of stuff out there, plenty of journalist pieces, opinion pieces out there. Read the stuff. And then, really, for me, there are just plenty of examples in everyday life. The result of whiteness and white privilege and these 400 years of systemic race-based oppression and exclusion are around here. And they mean that I, as a white person, experience and am treated very differently in my city to the way a black person is. Bottom line, simple reality. So let me give you two examples. I go shopping in a place called Golden Acres in the city of Cape Town. Um, it's like this giant labyrinthine type 
shopping center. And I say that not because it's dark and scary, but because it literally is a labyrinth under the city, under Adley Street, made up of about three or four different shopping malls. And I go down there to find deals because you've got all these stores that sell Edgar's and Woolworth's clothes, and I'm on a pastor's salary, so I've got to go still look good and stand in front of people, but do it on a budget. So I go down there to find these clothes, and I'm normally the only white person down there shopping for clothes. You can see the other white person down there because his eyes are like this. He's like, where am I? How did I get down here? How do I get out again? Where is the sun? Um, but I'm down there, and I'm shopping, and I often go in there, and I've got a backpack on my back because I ride a scooter around the city because I can't afford the parking. And so I have this backpack, and I... I go into one of these shops and I walk in and I browse and I walk out and I don't get a second glance from anybody. Nobody takes notice of me. Everybody ignores me. But if a black or a colored person goes into that same store, dressed the same way as me, with a backpack on his back, on his way out, he's going to get stopped by the security and they're going to ask to look inside his bag to see what's in there. And I'm like, you didn't stop me. I've seen that happen time and time again when I've been down there. This is whiteness affecting the way that black people treat black people, right? That's how deep it runs. My experience of Cape Town, and I presume my experience if I lived up here in Pretoria, is different to that of a black and colored person in the same city. And I think that's an important thing to own. To just clear the decks and say, guys, this is real. It's not make-believe. This is not some liberal left agenda that we're trying to sneak in. This is just real. It just happens. Here's another example. There was a trend a couple of months, maybe about a year ago now, for white people to take selfies with their black friends and then hashtag colorblind and then post it on social media so that everyone would feel good about this country and good about life and we can sing Kumbaya together and, and things would just be good, right? So that was, that was the general trend was we would just do that. Now here's the thing. In Cape Town, I can do that. I can declare my color blindness, and my black friend can stand next to me, and he can declare his color blindness, and we can link arms and declare it together, and we can take that selfie, and we can do the hashtag colorblind, and we can post it on Facebook and on Instagram. And then tonight, we can both take a walk up the street next to my apartment in Greenpoint, which is quite an affluent neighborhood next to Seapoint. And if I, walking up that street, dressed casually, stop and take a glance at a sound system in a fancy car that's parked on the side of the road, I probably won't see that event recorded on the neighborhood Facebook page tomorrow morning. If my black friend does the same thing, dressed the same way as me, does exactly the same thing, there's a pretty decent chance if a neighbor sees him, he's going to appear on the neighborhood Facebook group tomorrow morning, and we're going to be told to be vigilant. For, I think the term they've used in the past is undesirables in our neighborhood. We don't live in the same world. We live in two different worlds. And I can't pretend that we live in the same world. To pretend to me seems to be morally problematic. It seems to be delusional. It seems to be insulting. And worst of all, it seems to be dehumanizing. And this is the biggest thing that struck me. My complicity in whiteness and the system of ra and the systemic racism of my city, I think has fueled black pain. So I, I'm very, very, very grateful to my black friends who have shared their pain with me because they're under no obligation to do that, uh, and it must become really emotionally exhausting to have to explain it again every single time. 
But to know that my participation in the system is causing pain grieves me, particularly as a Christian, it grieves me, it shames me, and it does in that sense fill me with a sense of guilt. What equally disturbs me is my children are growing up in a world where the system is perpetuated. My daughter is growing up in a city where we go to a restaurant and the server is black. We go to the petrol station and the attendant is black. She goes to a school where the teachers are white and the assistants are black. Thankfully, we've just left that school. We're in another school where she has black teachers, and I'm, I'm deeply thankful for that reality, just so that she can see there's a difference. That's my experience of the city as a white person. I love my city. I really do. I love my city. And I could make all sorts of bad jokes about your city, but I love my city. I want to go out and revel in everything that is good in my city, but I have this deep unease that sits in me next to that expression of love and the feeling of love. And I'm not, at this point in my life, I'm still not quite sure what to do with it exactly. If you share something of that experience, if that's something of your feeling, I want to share with you a part of the, the Bible that has helped me to begin to process this. It comes in the book of Philippians, which is in the New Testament. Chapter 2, verse 5, the book of Philippians is written by a guy by the name of Paul, Paul of Tarsus. He writes it to a church in the ancient city of Philippi, modern-day Greece. He says this. He says, In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. See, friends, there is one person who is rightfully privileged. He's at the absolute top of the power dynamics pyramid, if you like. And that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The text tells us he has complete equality with God. That's what Paul is saying. He has earned privilege, justified privilege. He is worthy of having everybody subservient to him. Having everybody bow down and serve him. But here's the thing. Unlike us who want to deny our privilege and ignore it or even defend it, he sets it aside. He momentarily sets it aside. He doesn't have to. He's not complicit in some unjust system. There's no sort of moral pressure on him to set aside his privilege at this point. He didn't create the mess that the human race finds himself in. There's no guilt, no shame that he bears. He is rightly Lord of the universe. And yet he momentarily gives that all up, the Bible says. He empties himself, is actually what it literally says, of that privilege, and he takes on the nature of a servant, becomes a man, becomes a human being like you and me. And he enters into our broken, tortured reality. He doesn't have to, but he does. And Paul starts this whole section off by saying, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You should have the same mind as him, is what he literally says. And when I realize that, when I realize that the pattern Jesus sets for me really means that I have no basis to try and defend or ignore my privilege in my divided city, in this divided country. I, have no re I don't really have a good reason to cling to it. I don't have a good reason to fight off those who would challenge it. Should I lose my cultural privilege? 
I'll be in good company. The company of our Lord Jesus. Better yet, should I choose to deliberately critique and use my privilege for the benefit of those who are disenfranchised, even at the risk of losing it, then I'm following the pattern of my Savior. And as a Christian, I'm thinking, well, how can following Jesus be wrong? One of the reasons white folk like me are so terrified to deal with this privilege issue is because we don't want to be seen as wrong. A lot of it comes down to that. No one does. No one wants to be seen as wrong. No one wants to own up to the fact that they benefited from an unjust system. No one wants to implicate themselves in that. No one wants to maybe give up something, have to give up something, whether that's concede moral ground or actually give up material wealth. And yet I look at that and I think that's a little bit crazy. Because we as Christians, of all people, we should be more willing than anybody on this planet to concede. That's the starting point of our faith, right? Repentance. First sermon Jesus ever preaches, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. We repent, acknowledge our complicity with sin in this sinful world. That's how you become a Christian in the first place. Owning guilt is the start of real faith. Christians concede, that's what we do. And then we're saved by a Messiah who willingly gives up his wealth to secure us out of our complicity with that sin. That's the gospel. Why then are we so afraid to challenge our own privilege? Or even just to think about it and use the word? That fear, friends, I want to suggest to you is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. At least the way that Paul frames it here in Philippians. The pattern of our Lord. In Galatians, book of Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So he cuts across racial, class, and gender lines and boundaries in that declaration. There's absolute equality between all people, he says, in Christ. That is the biblical view of race. And so if there are systems then and structures that undermine that truth, which is in the Bible, it's there, we as Christians surely have a moral imperative, I think, to critique our own involvement in those systems and those structures. And, Lord willing, dismantle, to some extent, those systems and those structures through the way we conduct our everyday lives. Now, friends, I want to tell you that that's going to be costly. It costs Jesus, it's going to cost you. The text says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That was the cost that Jesus faced to reconcile us to God. He set aside his privilege and then he went to the cross. I, I think when I look at this whole situation, I look at our country, I think generally, I could be completely off here, maybe I just think too nicely of people, but I think generally white Captonians, white South Africans would like to see a reconciled, transformed, non-racial city, country. I think that's a genuine heart desire of many, many people. We want nation building to take place, but we want to do it without cost to ourselves, right? So structural racism and exclusion remains intact in our city and cities and in our countries. And this, this continues to mean that black people in general do not operate off a level footing when it comes to economic power, social power, advantage, all those sorts of things. And I just cannot see a way, maybe I'm just not smart enough to figure this out, but I, I just can't see a way that this structural inequality can be addressed without cost being occurred by the privileged. Hmm? Our task, I think, as white people, desiring to build an inclusive city, an inclusive country, 
has to be to bear some of that cost. That's how true reconciliation happens in just about every other situation, right? If we won't bear cost, then we will not be nation builders. And in Christ we have the pattern. We have the model answer. We have the blueprint. This is how you do it. We have him who was privileged above privilege, giving up his privilege, incurring great cost, his death on the cross to bring ultimate reconciliation, ultimate justice. Now, I honestly, I'm, I'm not smart. I don't know the practical details. I'm a Bible guy. I teach the Bible. That's what I do. I don't know the practical details of how we necessarily do this always on a day-to-day basis. I have some thoughts, and I, and I think those of you who want to pursue this pattern of Christ need to be getting together and sharing those thoughts with each other. I don't know all the details, but I do know the ultimate answer, I think. And that is a crucified Messiah. That is the ultimate answer. And friends, for you, if you're white and you're listening to this, and because of the corrosive power of white privilege, I need to say this too, I think. And that is, don't take Jesus' example as an opportunity to set yourself up as the crucified Messiah. Look at me. I am so willing to give up my privilege and save my impoverished black brothers and sisters. Don't do that. You're not the crucified Messiah in this passage. Jesus is. You needed to be saved by the crucified Messiah because you were impoverished. It's because you were saved that now you follow this pattern. Not because you are the Savior. You need, I need, we need the crucified Messiah. If you're wrapped up in guilt, the crucified Messiah is there to forgive. If you are trapped in apathy, the crucified Messiah is there with his nail-pierced hands to shock you out of that apathy. If you are not white and you're a victim of these dehumanizing systems, the crucified Messiah is there to restore your true humanity, to affirm you, to give you dignity, to invite you to be a brother and a sister with him. If you're ashamed, Crucified Messiah is there to carry your shame on that bloodied wooden cross. For myself, like I said, this is personal testimony. For myself, I don't think I'm going to be a very good citizen of my city or of my country or a very good Christian in general until I have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So hear these words one more time. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father God, we um, delude ourselves if we think we are not sinful human beings and that we cannot easily become complicit in all sorts of structural sin if we think we're above that. And so I pray you'd open our eyes to the ways that we are complicit. I pray that you'd open our eyes to the way that we perpetuate privilege in unhelpful ways, racial privilege, the other forms of privilege we're going to speak about later, I pray that you will make it clear to us, you will help us to see our, our role in those things, help us to own that, help us to repent, and then help us to live justly in response to what we've seen. 
Lord, let your word, let your son, Jesus Christ, our crucified Messiah, be our guide and our, our yardstick of how we're doing in this way. Let him point us towards righteousness, towards just living. Let him point us towards a fairer, kinder, more compassionate, more empathetic society. I thank you for this group here tonight, Lord. I thank you for um, the diversity of this group. And I pray that the diversity would not just be a pretty picture for an Instagram feed, but a reality because we have owned our sin, we have sought genuine reconciliation, and we have found Christ to be our ultimate solution. And so I ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.